Hello, my name is Dama Mega and welcome to this next edition of the Windhorse Publications podcast. And we've got a real treat today in a conversation that explores with Sachidasa um, his life, his writing, and the book that we are going to be releasing in the UK in December and in the USA and an audiobook in April next year. And the book is called The Sound of One Hand, A Buddhist Life. And Satchidasa is a very astute observer of his own life and really reflects in this memoir about the process of integration, the process of becoming a Buddhist, the process of reconciling with uh, the fact that he was born with one hand um, in this beautifully, beautifully observed tale. So today I'm going to talk with him about writing the book, about his story, about a three-generational story of Buddhism coming to the West and about um, becoming a Dharma practitioner and the the relational practice, joining a Sangha uh, process of opening up and the questions of belonging that come with um, becoming a Buddhist. So I hope you really enjoy the story. I hope you enjoy the podcast and I hope you'll enjoy the book when you have a chance to read it. Hello, Sachidasa. Hello, Dharma Mega. Hello. <laughs> so today we've got um, Sachidasa, who is the author of The Sound of One Hand, A Buddhist Life. And uh, Sachidasa is joining me today. Where are you? Where are you today? Uh, I'm in Bethnal Green, East London. There you go, in the Buddhist village. On the, on the outskirts of it, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Sachidasa wrote, well, you wrote this book called The Sound of One Hand. Let's start with, uh, well, let's start with the title of the book. What's that about? The Sound of One Hand Clapping is a well-known um, Zen koan, at least if you know about koans, it's well-known. Um, yeah, so, uh, and I was born with one hand. And uh, so the title arose as sort of irresistible. The, the koan is a uh, one of those unanswerable questions that the Zen master used to pose to the the student and would, would flummox them and they wouldn't be able to really come up with a rational answer. They'd have to reach beyond the question to really give a, a proper answer to that kind of question. Um, so I thought it was an, it's an intriguing idea. I don't use koans myself, but I, it was too good to resist the pun uh, as well. But, you know, the sound of one hand is also the sound of somebody writing, isn't it? So you write with one hand and it's a memoir. So we've, we've basically, you published this book in February, you self-published it. Um, and yes, uh, actually you, you brought the book to Windhorse Publications and we said, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, twice actually. Not you twice, but so, yeah, I did. Yeah, over the years. Yeah. <laughs> um, so actually, you and I haven't worked together on this book, which is a bit unusual for me. It's really nice to um, to come in a little bit later in the process. So I'm curious, why did you why did you write this book? We can come back to the the themes of it and what it means to um, write a Buddhist life. But why did you set out to write a book? I, I set out to write a book when I was in my early 20s, but I didn't have enough to actually write about. I just had this, the this feeling that I, I had some, I could write. It was a sort of an assumption which was actually undermined when many years later I did feel like I had something to write and I tried to write it. <laughs> sort of started, as I was coming up to 40, I, I really I started to write a novel first, but it was, it was thinly disguised autobiography. And um, I, I got into all kinds of technical problems with writing novels and started to read books about how to write a novel. And then I was doomed. So I gave all the novel up and I thought, let's just write a, a memoir. This is this is what's needed. Yeah. So I set about doing that and um, it took me quite a few years, actually. I, I really just went away on solitary retreat every so often, came back and then wrote in my local cafe when I had a, had time. And... Um, I was just trying to, I was learning to write. That was part of the, the enjoyment of the experience. But really, I just learned to tell things simply and, and well. And, you know, I found that was really hard. <laughs> that was, yeah. 
you've had obviously you've had experience as a writer. You were a journalist on the crime. Yeah, I was a journalist. Yeah, I was a journalist at the courts. Yeah, the court. I was a court reporter. So I learned a kind of a more pithy style from journalism, but it didn't really help me when it came to personal writing. You know, I I started writing and it was um, I, in quite a lot of what I would write would be me telling the uh, imagined reader what I thought about life or, or the, the subject in question. And it would, or there'd be a few nice sort of anecdotes from my life that I could remember, but really it was, it was a bit too, um, yeah, it, it wasn't, it wasn't quite going to really be interesting. Actually, it was, it's fairly boring. All my, my thoughts and opinions. I, once I'd got them out on the page, I realized they were a bit dull. <laughs> so I, 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 I started to write about my hand at a certain point. I mean, I did include that originally, but then when I started to write about having been born with one hand, I thought, ah, oh, that's a, that's the theme to start on for any tale about myself, which might sound obvious to now that I've written a book about it, but I didn't intend to write a book about having one hand. I mean, it's not about having one hand, but, but it is as well. So you're not particularly a famous person. Well, not yet anyway. <laughs> so what, what, um, what was it about, what is it about your, your life and your story that you, you wanted to communicate and also that you thought would be of interest or of value to a reader? Yeah, that's one of the reasons it's hard to get published because I'm not famous. I don't have a big Twitter following and um, nothing absolutely exceptional has happened in my life. Um, but the writing the writing uh, process, I mean, I, I just felt like I had something to communicate and that, I, that my main interest was in the writing and getting, um, you know, getting into that. So I did have in my mind, of course, somebody would be listening and, you know, reading my work. Um, usually that was sort of, me, I had to satisfy myself about about that. But I, I guess it's an instinct more than a kind of sense of I want to tell people about this or that. That is what emerged through the process of writing, discovering, you know, what it is. Writing is a creative process. You know, I, you can start off with the idea that your life is something that's happened, and that you, your job is to write it down. You know, it's already happened; it just hasn't been written down yet. But that. That's actually quite. Um, that's not what it's like. You 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 are creating and dwelling on and thinking about your life and then trying to portray it. It's all a creative act, and so you you discover what it is that you want to say when you've when you've done the job, really. So I didn't start off with a very clear idea, but I did start off thinking that there is there is a story um, that I think people you know, can relate to. And it obviously has to do with, um, well, one of, one of the main things is that I am a part of a Buddhist community and part of a, a Buddhist order now. And there's a, there's a journey that I've seen many people go on. And I, did, I was trying to portray my journey through that in a way that allowed people to see that. Mm. And you've, you've certainly been successful in that, I mean, some some people who are listening to this may have already read your book, and some may not. But your writing is deeply, deeply engaging, and and partly because you're such a an astute observer of both yourself and people around you, and you're um, uh, you're you're very, very precise and very honest uh, in your in your writing in a way that's often. Um, well, entertaining in the sense that it, it's very, very engaging. I remember right at the beginning, one of the early sentences you say, you know, my my grandfather was interested in, I uh, can't remember the wording of it exactly, like, you know, in the Taoism, Buddhism and in all, all such things and it bored your mum to tears. I just thought it was so great. You know, you take this very weighty, serious thing and then, of course, we're in the we're in the realm where for some people that's just dull and boring as it is for some of your friends down the pub when you get really involved in Buddhism. Absolutely. I mean, I, I the stories that I had to tell about, you know, my my mum and and uh her father, my my grandfather, um you know, those things 
distillations of my memories from childhood and, and things my mother's told me. But but you know everybody has them. Don't you know we all have those those in our minds of of things that have happened in childhood. Such an amazing time to reflect on. But then you, you know you have to work hard to find the way that you need. Well, I I had to work hard to find the way that I needed to communicate that be it using pithiness humor poignancy of life and um or sort of maybe precise you know thoughtful things as well so it's a mix isn't it and i and i've i'm delighted that so many people seem to have been able to sort of walk alongside my life um and have found points of connection with it yeah mm. so maybe Maybe it would could be good to talk about some of the themes in the book. It's all kind of captured in a way in the title and the subtitle. So it's The Sound of One Hand, A Buddhist Life. And one way you could look at your story is a story of three generations of Buddhism or the Dharma coming to the West. And the first of those generations was your grandfather's generation. Maybe, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your you call him your grandpa. My grandpa, yeah. Well, grandpa was a big influence on on my early life, but in a way, writing the book has made him more of an influence on my life in that strange way that the more you kind of think about a person, the more alive they become to you, the more resonances you can find. And it and uh, he was he was uh, you know born before the. Well, just just uh, just before the second, the first World War, actually, and he was an optician in uh, Leon C, and then in uh, e uh, Ilford, East London. So he he was an optician, and he uh, after the war there was a period when uh, it became much more common to read books on. Um, as Madame Blavatsky was the famous one, wasn't it? Isis Unveiled, and then there was. Books by um, books about Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, um, the Upanishads, and, and uh, various Eastern religions. He was a he was uh, to begin with. He was a rationalist. He would have called himself writing for the Rationalist magazine, and then then he started to open up to Eastern ideas. And you know, clearly, he was very inspired by that. He lived with um, you know in a, in a suburban house in Cheam. And he started to have philosophy groups and then um, started to teach people to meditate by the late 70s, I think. Uh, he himself learned to meditate. But he was a uh, rather particular character. He was very controlling. He, he was domestically rather unbending. And he did, he, he, in a way, he inflicted philosophy eastern philosophy religion on on my mother and her brother and kind of contr controlled the house um with with uh his 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 need to have some quiet in the afternoon so he could write poetry and study and things so and it was it was actually quite extreme in some ways he was he was a, a very he was obsessive really yeah but he had this love for it and he started to write a book about it, and many years later, I, I discovered, and this was after I'd been involved in in um, Buddhism for some time, and I had actually become a mitra in the Tri Ratna Sangha. I I went home one day, and I went home rather to see my my grandma, who I called Nana, and she was living. My grandpa had died by this time. She was still living in the same place, and I said, "How I'm living in the London Buddhist Centre now." Uh, Nana and uh, you know I was living in a community in the London Buddhist Centre and she said oh yes how is uh, Sangharakshita <laughs> Sangharakshita and I you know Sangharakshita obviously being the, the 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 kind of founder of the Tri Ratna Order and I you know I'd been reading his books by that point and thinking about him I'd even met him I think but I couldn't believe that my Nana had actually said this. <laughs> And it transpired that he, that my grandpa had actually invited Sangharakshita to their house when um, in the 1960s, 1964, I think, before before he had founded the, the, the Western Buddhist Order. 
And my mum had met him when my mum was a teenager. And my, my nana had met him and my whole family had met him on that side. And he gave a talk at their house. So, so that was a discovery I made. Um, and he had given, I, I had, after he died, I got some of his books. And that was what set me going on the Buddhist path. I got some books about Zen, which I took to university with me. Um, so, you know, he, he didn't directly teach me Buddhism. He did try to teach me meditation once. I wasn't interested. Um, but he was an, ex he's a very eccentric character. He used to hold forth with a, with a cigar or, and, and, and kind of pontificate on all kinds of deep subjects while the rest of the family were sort of bemused or, um, actively not interested in the case of my mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You tell the great story about discussions at the kitchen table about whether or not the table really existed from this lovely child's perspective of <laughs> trying to get a handle on what's at stake. Yeah, I mean, if it did, it did intrigue me. I, I would always, I was, I had a really retentive mind, so I would remember all kinds of discussions that we had from previous days occasions, and and then sort of bring them back up at the, the breakfast table because I thought it was really interesting to discuss. You know, if the breakfast table was there, if we all went into the lounge, you know, was the breakfast table still there? And, and, and who's mine? You know, how could you say that it was there if nobody was seeing it? You know, kind of stuff that um, doesn't really help much, but it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I loved about your book was that, I don't know about you, but for those of us who are, let's say, convert Buddhists, uh, there's this, this enormous, maybe, maybe perhaps lifelong process of trying to integrate the Dharma with our um, whatever cultural conditioning, whatever uh, values and whatever personalities we have. You know, the, the, there's a sort of view of Buddhism as something uh, elsewhere as something idealistic as something uh, maybe renunciate you know maybe it looks like a monk or a nun or maybe it looks like just sitting quietly somewhere uh, and I think one of the things that's so successful about your book is is this telling the story of one person's uh, process of integrating you know the Dharma the teachings of the Buddha those practices a sangha and like your own personhood, you know, your history, your impulses. I wonder if you can say a little bit about, uh, or maybe, you know, looking, looking back at writing the book, um, how that thread developed for you. Yeah. I mean, going back to my grandfather in some ways, I do, I remember when he died, he, um, he had his body put, I mean, he didn't do it, obviously. We brought his body back and put it on his desk and around, surrounded by his books on Dharma, his books on on Buddhism uh, and all kinds of other things. And it was in his, in his study. And I remember seeing him and really being quite shocked. It was the first dead body I'd seen. And thinking about all his learning and all the kind of academic pursuits that he'd made and his efforts at meditation. But it was it was all done without any community, without any teacher. The idea was that you very much were your own kind of person, your own teacher. It was a kind of weakness to be part of a group, um, uh, unless you were at the top of the group, which he ended up being. And it was, it was a, I really thought I don't want to end up somehow like him marooned in ideas and, and thoughts and without, um, there was some, I could, even at the age of 18, I could see that there was, there was something that was not, um, explored, uh, in terms of, you know, the emotional life and the, and, and, and other aspects of him. Maybe he did. I, of course, I can't say I didn't. I only knew him to that age and never got to speak to him as, a, as an adult in a way. But that, that's what struck me. And when I came to find a Sangha, um, which is in you know a later period in the development of Buddhism in this country, there are now lots of Sanghas. And it's a totally different 
arena to the one my grandfather had and in a way we should sort of thank those early people who who brought you know who who did start to bring dharma into um, the culture here um but when i found a sangha then i i immediately saw that this was a very different kind of thing completely different actually from what he was doing um there were people uh when firstly it's relational and and you know your whole life in a way that was the encouragement it was was to be brought in it wasn't just about meditation meditation experiences going on maybe the odd retreat which my grandfather never went on a retreat um it it was about bringing your whole self to the table if you like and um that was tremendously exciting to me on the back of quite a strong meditation experience and the retreat experience which is very often the way that people first become really involved in dharma practice so on the back of that i was then hearing about all these this um this presentation that really you need to, we need to try to bring our whole selves in a way into relationship with this thing we call the dharma or buddhism was a bit abstract but there was this sangha there and uh my first impression was this is absolutely extraordinary this is something that is unprecedented in my life it just because my grandfather knew about buddhism that didn't make any difference at all there was nothing in my cultural background to suggest that at one point in my life i was going to have this real opening of the heart or the imagination a real feeling that there's something so much more about life you know growing up in south london growing up in you know a middle class very happy little family um in a in a culture which which didn't really contain you know any reference to that in a culture which didn't even pose any decent questions you know you talk about death and that would be you you there'd be nothing it's nothing you know you wouldn't there wouldn't be any way forward on some of the discussions about what was most important in life uh, that's at least what i found it was all either very academic or abstract you know i studied a bit of philosophy but uh when i came to the sangha that was really something that was um that the so that opening up and i've seen so many people of course um friends and others who've been through that and i really wanted to begin by describing that then as you say um Well, I moved into a, a community. I got to going on lots more retreats. Um my 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 girlfriend left me because I was doing that. Um and I moved into an all men's community at the the, the Buddhist center in, in Bethnal Green where I still live. I, I live with my wife now just around the corner, but for that I lived there for quite a lot of my 20s. Yeah, but then despite this sort of vision and this sense of life opening up and 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 a sense of there being more than one can imagine as is portended by the the Buddhist tradition and all this this wonderful inspiration that flows through the Buddhist tradition and then my you know, I did go on the path of bringing myself to the the table in a way with the help of friends and with the help of of others um and there was conflict in my life then so after a few years of living in the buddhist center i actually felt more miserable than when i moved in and i had expected to kind of get steadily better and for my mind to steadily steadily be full of more and more i don't know joy and that people would notice it anyway um but but no that that didn't happen and um one of the one of the things that started to happen was i realized that you know a lot of the things that my life had prepared me for such as romance and with a career and all that kind of stuff was was still really really important to me even though i was also very um drawn to buddhist practice and inspired by that i was equally keen on fulfilling a lot of other um things we can call them you know conditionings from my from my life and upbringing but they were important to me i wanted romance i didn't really see where that fitted into the the buddhist scheme of things <laughs> and uh, that worried me you know that actually kind of like well um and money you know sex let's get down to it it's 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 you know these things were you know where does that fit in you see buddhism is a 
in a way it's a renunciate path isn't it it's at least it seems to be you seem to have to sort of give up things and um yeah I, i'd hardly started on some of those things <laughs> so yeah <laughs> yeah but listening listening to you speak like this i'm i'm kind of just aware of so many echoes in a way with the establishment of tree ratna this particular sangha you know that we we happen to to share this sangha we don't happen to like we we share this sangha but you know the sort of sangha rakshita's response to the dharma himself and trying to find a sangha trying to find companions trying to find um a way of integrating his own you know his own uh well, also his other loves, let's say, you know, poetry and arts, for example, into a Dharma life. Like that was a whole process across his life. And, uh, uh, and, and you speaking about trying to integrate, you know, a, a wish for a family life, a wish for uh, work that's not just packing cans in a, <laughs> in a whole food shop or, or moving things around. You know, like you had ambition, you had quite a lot of ambition. Maybe you still do. I, I, I mean, I wonder whether you say now. You know, you said you got you got a bit more uh, miserable over time as these, perhaps the um, dimensions of of your your life came more into conflict as you were trying to integrate them. Is there is there any resolution of that in the book? Well, there is. Um, yeah. Um, but it's good to stay with the lack of resolution, isn't it, as well? And <laughs> I think there's something about persisting with one's one's in, in unintegratedness as well. Uh, I think like when I was in my 20s, I, I heard this idea, you know, we need to be integrated practitioners. And that is right. But, but the way my mind picked that up was, you know, quite quickly, I'm going to have to stop doing some of the things that I actually like doing. And, um, you know, maybe I, it'd take a few years or whatever, but I, I will eventually become more packaged like I'm supposed to be packaged or something now the, but the actual path of integration is of course much more messy than that it doesn't it doesn't go according to one's own sense of what's you know how it should go um so yeah I I became very doubtful uh, I became doubtful about but is this the right community for me you're quite right this is this was Sangharakshita's sort of genius in a way is, is to realize that one had to bring oneself you know, into the whole the whole picture through communication, through study, through you know perseverance. Um, but it but it, it isn't isn't easy. Um, and it's, it as a, as a process, it led me into into quite a lot of doubt at certain points. And doubt being a kind of a stuckness, a sense of well, I'm not really worthy of being a Buddhist. Then I'd I'd ask for ordination, and 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 uh, people were picking up on things like. Well, that I was divided in my feelings. I couldn't honestly express my love of the three jewels. I couldn't. I couldn't really easily say I love doing pujas or worship, or, or or that I felt. But I did. I did get something out of these, and yet I was stuck because I. I also didn't want to commit my life to something um, that I wasn't really fully behind. So there's something to be said in retrospect for kind of persisting with one's lack of integration and and kind of just being truthful to what what I what I did like of course that in itself is not always easy um to do um because when well, you have a lot of fantasies don't you about life that aren't really achievable anyway <laughs> but uh yeah so I I did I did persist and I had to leave you know that's part of the part of the journey of the book is that I had to kind of put down some of my I, I had to stop being, uh, well, I was requested ordination, so I unrequested it. I left the London Buddhist Centre. I left the community after about six years. And I, I didn't kind of break all ties, but I had certainly got into some difficulties with some people. Um, I, I, I was sort of, well, this, this either either they were superior to me or they were just, or I would judge them, I would judge them to be superior or I judged them to be inferior or I judged it to all be a, a mess, um, or you know, so I was I was in that kind of judging kind of mode. Not all the time. I mean, I had a I had good times. It wasn't like I was always miserable, but um, 
that became persistent. So I needed to leave, and um, that was hard. You know, leave, leave, leaving a kind of spiritual community where you you feel that, that something there expresses something so important, and yet you, you have to leave. Well, that's what I felt. Um, so I did, and um, the journey back, in a way, was from from that point of leaving uh, was to go, and I, I moved in with my my girlfriend at that time, who's now my wife, and um, came, came back on in a, in a different way. Um, uh, it took another, probably another seven or eight years from that point before I was ordained. And then, you know, that, that process of integration just carries on. Of course, some of the more urgent things that I thought about when I was 25 no longer apply. Now I'm, you know, in my mid-40s, late-40s. But, um, yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why this book is so incredibly helpful. Um, I was chatting actually to Kshanti Kaira the other day, who's a sort of young person's coordinator, and he's actively encouraging everybody to read it. And I think it's exactly because, um, you know, in the first flush of that, I don't know, falling in love with the Dharma or having these really big experiences with meditation or this feeling of belonging. I mean, so many retreats I've been on, you know, you see, say people saying, well, actually, I feel somehow at home for the first time in my life. And as you say, there's this sort of magic of the possibility of communication that's often not possible in other places. And, um, and yet, <laughs> and yet it's not a straight line to, to, um, uh, you know, we, we keep having to bring all of the dimensions of ourselves into it. You know, so he, he's sort of saying, like, read this book because this will give you a much better sense of what might happen than, than um, you know, a series of sort of almost technical terms about, oh, well, and then you'll become more integrated. Well, what does that look like? You know, what does that feel like? Yes, that's, I mean, I've been, um, yeah, so happy that that, that people have, have related it in, to, in, in that way. One of the phrases you, you said then was at home, you know, that feeling of, of uh, feeling almost a coming home when one discovers the Sangha, uh, a sense of belonging. And if I could say, you know, one word, what the book is about, in a way it's about belonging or the search or the struggle for belonging. And of course that's a complex issue. And, you know, the Sangha would be the first place where I, kind of understood what was missing in my life um, previously. Well, this goes back to the, the title, uh, you know, or, or the having one hand is, is, is something that I've, I've missed. Maybe we can talk about the hand, but um, the, that, that feeling that, that this, yeah, the feeling of <laughs> not, not belonging, not, not having, not belonging to, it's almost uh, being kind of, like in a culture that can really meet, I've thought about this, can really meet one, really meet people in their totality. You know, I, you know, we're not no longer really connected to the land. Most of us, we're no longer in real communities. We're in abstract communities where we're, we're not, we, we, we get very invested in our identities in all sorts of ways, but that is often a, just a poor proxy for really uh, belonging. And of course, then we don't really belong to the cosmos or who have a feeling of disconnection from nature or the wider sense of what life is and, and, and the gods and the myths. We're not really connected to all these things. And yet you come, you come to a Sangha and there suddenly that all comes to life again. That maybe I really am connected. Uh, maybe this, this is, or maybe it's not, we're not in this nihilistic bleak sort of thing where, where we're all just going to die and that's it. And, and, uh, Maybe there's more to to it, and and then you you find out that there is more to it, and there's probably there's far more to it than you can even imagine. Um, but so then, but then there's also you have to go ask is this belonging to this group? Is this is that what belonging means? Is it belonging to a group? Belonging to a Buddhist order, and uh, you know all the shenanigans that can go on in any order or group or, or anything. Um, how, how do you navigate all of that? And uh, there's an element of us which doesn't belong. You know, the, there's a, the Dharma points beyond. It doesn't point to belonging to an order or having a name or even calling yourself a Buddhist. It, it points beyond that. And, um, yeah, that, that's, you know, in a way, 
I got to a kind of resolution, and I was a resolution where I, I, I just, I just felt ha- happy and grateful that I had come across this wonderful thing. And you know, it, I do go in into it in the book in terms of the difficulties that this order has faced and the, and the criticisms of the whole order and the founder and everyone in between. Um, so I. You know, I go into that, but I, I ended up feeling very grateful and glad that this had been presented to me and that this this was I could flow along, I could kind of give up doubt, I could just flow along with what I found in this life of, of great value. I of course I'm I don't regard myself as having even begun really in terms of Dharma practice in many ways. But yeah, so I I, I just thought this is a, a gift and and I and I managed to not you know to see the, to see the sangha the community in a way not to see through it to this greater thing this is what it's really about you know there's all the politics of life that get come to you know almost crowd out that that real that real inspiration which we all start with in a way um so I found my way back to that inspiration but maybe with a somewhat more realistic um sense of of uh yeah life in general <laughs> yeah when you're young and you start the dharma practice you have to also just grow up in an ordinary sense as well you you kind of got to go through all all one's ordinary growing up things disappointments that everybody faces whether you're a dharma practitioner or not mm. um you know so let's come back to the hand and the place of the hand in i don't know in in belonging in finding missing finding your belonging yeah i uh so i was born with a congenital birth defect um my mum was terribly um affected by this it was 1974 there wasn't any great support structure for this there as there is now but um as obviously having you know when you're when you give birth to a child you check the fingers and toes, don't you? And you, that's such a poignant thing. Um, so, yeah, that was difficult. I, I, of course, didn't really realize how difficult that was till, till actually I was an adult before I, I probably was in my 30s before I really started to imagine what that was like. Um, but um, I grew up a happy little boy. And you just deal with life as you find it. And I, you know, I had one hand, and my parents would help me with finding practical solutions to things. Um, and in a way, I wasn't missing a hand because I never, I never had one um, to miss. But there was a point where I became conscious of of the difficulty of this, and the difficulty wasn't to do with, you know, learning to ride my bike or tie up my shoes, etc or cutlery, which is the main thing that they always focus on. Um, the difficulty was social. The difficulty was um, feeling awkward, feeling different. Um, and then I had a period when I w- that was pointed out to me in rather, um, you know, uh, unkind terms by some of my peers at, at school. And so... You, uh, there was a definite moment when I realised this is a problem that isn't going away. It's a problem with no solution on the horizon. It's a, it's a it's a, something I'm stuck with. And that feeling of being stuck, I think, is one of the things that sort of persisted with me right through my ordination process. That feeling of doubt about myself, of feeling stuck, and I could easily kind of echo back to this early when I was seven or eight feeling of heaviness. So this 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 thing has settled on me. I can't deal. I can't. I've got to just it's dukkha, isn't it? It would say in Buddhism, it's real. It's a sort of my life's pretty good. I've got a the rest of my body's great, and I just want to get on like everybody just wants to get on. But I've got this visible thing, and people are teasing or picking on me on on, on as a result of it. Um, so you know that that affected me, and I didn't want to talk about it. I want I didn't I wanted to direct attention away from it, and I think probably for the first three decades of my life, I wanted to direct attention. To some other facet of my personality, <laughs> something that I could really say, "Oh, I am really academically great," or I was quite good. I was quite sporty, you know. I was a bit of an all-rounder. So, so I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to be that for that to be the thing that people noticed. But of course, 
is obvious. So people are going to notice it. I didn't want to talk. I didn't really want people to sort of say, how do you feel about that? Occasionally people would ask me questions, but I gave off a vibe. I think, you know, I was like, I'm fine. No, nothing to see here. Yeah. So yeah, I've got on one hand. Yeah, no problem. That was the healthy in a way response that got me through my childhood. Um, but it didn't really work. So when I was in my later, late twenties, I been practicing meditation and awareness for quite, quite a number of years by then. And, um, I saw a, a guy on the tube one day and he, he had an arm just like mine and I just wanted to get away from him. I just thought, and I hope he doesn't spot me. He probably spotted me the instant he got on the tube because it's quite easy to spot someone with a difference. You always spot it, but you politely pretend you haven't. And then, um, I thought, why am I feeling that? Why I need? Why is that? So I ended up spending a, a couple of years in investigating that more. I got a prosthetic and saw what that was like. Didn't really like that. I also went on a camp for children with similar disabilities. Um, all of us and all the adult helpers, everybody on the camp activity weeks did two of them, and and they were everybody had the same thing or or, or, or no hands. Um, that was incredibly moving, and that that was the moment when I really thought, "Ah, oh, this, this, there's some, there's some healing to do here." And, and and in a way, that was that was incredibly healing, seeing just being mirrored and seeing children, um, you know, fumbling over their cutlery and uh, you know doing things in the way that I do. Uh, I noticed, sort of, for example, I noticed my tendency to rush things because I don't want to make a. Uh, an allowance for myself. I, I just want to rush to get things done by the shortest cut, which often leads to things being spilt <laughs> or something. Um, so, yeah, that, that, so that, that, you know, and so, and how does that relate to, in a way, the whole thing, the, the belonging, you know, I, I guess there is for all of us, I'm just imagining there's, there's, there's some, thing in all of us that we in a way try to direct attention away from or we we feel vulnerable about it might not be physical or visible it might be just in our sense of who we are and our background or our family origin or whatever but uh there's probably always some some area of consciousness let's say that is that is that is holding us back or or is not brought out and so often it's the bringing out of that that is the really important thing and it's the bit that you don't want to acknowledge um that that then turns into the bit that is the precious bit it's not everything about you of course you know we're, we're multifaceted so um you know part of the contradiction of writing a story about your life is that it's true and then i had to explore the you know, say, for example, the question of, did I become a Buddhist because I had this suffering point in my life of having one hand? And was that what drove me to the Dharma? Or unless I resisted that strenuously for a number of years, and then I embraced that. And then I realized it's also not really true as well. It's not fully true. I, I, my grandfather, you know, he was on that path and I, I am his grandson. And uh, maybe that's more the reason. Um Maybe there's other reasons that I haven't got a clue about. Um, uh, and so there's, there's many stories there, but that story of feeling that, that, that vulnerability and meditation really helped me grow. And then there was these other things that I had to do as well to do with becoming more aware of my, my inner awkwardness and my feeling of exposure that, that, that comes with, with having one hand still there it's still kind of with me i can spot it yeah so so i i guess writing the book has been very valuable to me in the sense that saying isn't there by some psychologist i can't remember if you if you don't if you if you don't learn to tell the story of your life the story is going to tell you so um just the, we often in in tree runner and we tell life stories and such a precious thing to do to to give a reflective space to to really dwelling on your life not in a kind of navel gazing way but just telling the story of your life to other people or maybe in a book but um that that gives you a kind of reflective distance and it's a it's a precious thing to be able to devote time to that and really 
really, really, um, yeah, explore your life and then it changes. So, you know, and, and I think through the eight or nine years that I was slowly, steadily grafting away at, at writing my story, um, I changed a lot as a result of actually doing that. And you, you now uh, are a father. You're now at the start of a next generational turn. Yes, yes. We, um, <clears throat> my wife and I, um, adopted a little boy this year, um, and uh, that's been interesting, uh, <laughs> knackering, joyful, really joyful. Um, and of course, it's again brought on another layer of thinking about my own parents and what parents in general do for children and the kind of the difficulties of all that um you know it's another an, another whole layer um i i i don't get so much time to meditate or go on retreats at the moment but i i get up and sometimes i can sit in my armchair and then thomas gets up and he'll come and sit in my lap he's five years old and was chanting a mantra and I chant it for a while and then I stop and he says, is it finished? I said, yes, it's finished now. <laughs> I don't know what he makes of it all. He says, when am I going to get a Buddhist name? Um, but so, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I, um, it's a very, um, yeah, wonderful thing. Um, I'm looking forward to the publication of, of my book with Windows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, it's so lovely. Um, it's so lovely to hear you speaking about the writing and and the process for you. I mean, the book itself is 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 a is a really wonderful piece of storytelling, and it um, you've been talking a little bit about the the part of the part of your uh, defence, let's say, of. Um, being, you know, really smart, really funny, uh, really astute observer, um, pointing the light onto your capacities and, and wanting to exercise those capacities and, and writing is part of that exercise of capacities. And it's, it's really, it's really beautifully done. And then this, this sort of really tender thread of, of, of the part that you, you show, um, that you haven't wanted to be seen, but you show it in the book, and you and you see the beauty in that. Particularly that camp you were talking about um, with kids and adults with uh, similar sort of disabilities is a really beautiful part of the writing. Where you, uh, I, I I sort of felt like an exhalation when I read that. Somehow I was like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> there's there's that too, which has kind of come to rest somehow. Uh, very very beautiful and i have no doubt that the book will not only inspire but also i think um give other people confidence that this is part of the process you know like our our confusions and doubts aren't separate from the process they 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 very much are part of the process of uh integration and resolution so you know i think it's really astute in that way so I'm really, really pleased we're publishing it. it um, it's going to come out in the UK. We're basically just doing another reprint of your book uh, so that we don't run out of books to sell between us. So that'll come out in mid-December. And then you're going to be doing a, an audiobook, which is the first time we're actually coordinating an audiobook from our side. Uh, so that's very exciting. And the audio That is very exciting. I know, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And um, so the audiobook and the USA release will be in April 2023. So, yeah. Is there anything you want to say about what you hope the book will do out there in the world? I've been very pleased with with just, you know, and, and delighted people people have come up to me with a big, big smile on their face saying they, they feel they know me really well. And obviously I didn't write it so that people know me really well, um, but I, I wrote it to try to show this show a story and through that to allow people to kind of walk alongside that story and one of the beautiful thing about memoir is that you you read a memoir and somehow you're you are you are living that life and you're 
is telling you something about your life as well at the same time. And it's, 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 it's that ability that we all have to connect with each other. Uh, and yet we're so sort of unique. And yet there is this utter connection that we have with each other. I read a book recently about um, surfing, a surfing journey called Barbarian Days. And I've never surfed in my life, but I just... I just uh, got right into that whole world and his interior world, and he told it very honestly at times as well. Um, so that's 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 what I hope. I hope people enjoy it. Well, thank you, Sachidasa, for writing the book and for um, oh, I don't know bringing yourself so fully into that story, and as you say, making making space for that empathy. I have no doubt at all that everyone who reads it will will enjoy it. Uh, and we'll accompany you in that <laughs> path of yours. Uh, thank you so much. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you with the various uh, launches and releases, and wish you all the best with it. Look forward to it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sachidasa. That is the last of our podcast episodes for this year. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed them. I hope you continue to listen to them and share them with your friends and. More than that, I hope that you have a really good end of year, festive season period. I know that it's not always that easy over uh, Christmas time and New Year's time. So I hope you take care of yourselves and others around you and that you continue to be able to draw on the resources of mindfulness and compassion. And I very much look forward to seeing you next year. Um, We've got some very exciting podcast episodes coming up. Uh, at the moment, in in pencil, we have the possibility of a conversation with Visantara about the book that we're about to release of his in December, much awaited, a new edition of Meeting the Buddhas. And then we'll be having a conversation with Nagabodi, who's just finished writing a biography of his friend and teacher, founder of the Triratna Buddhist movement, a book called Sangharakshita, The Boy, The Monk, The Man. So we've got some great episodes coming up. See you in the new year. Take care. Windhorse Publications is part of the Tree Ratna Buddhist community. And this podcast is sponsored by Future Dharma Fund, a Buddhist fundraising charity which helps fund Dharma projects across the world, including ours. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to them to help them fund current and future projects like ours. You can find out more about Wintour's publications by going to our website.